0: Yanvenu, and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. I'm your host, Diana, and this week, We are celebrating a huge milestone. Tomorrow, the land of desire turns one year old. When I first decided to launch a French history podcast, I made a promise to myself. Having no idea whatsoever about whether this show would be successful or a total dud, I decided that I would produce the podcast for at least one full calendar year before deciding whether or not to abandon the idea. Well, here we are at the one year anniversary, and I am blown away by the reception that my wacky side project has received. There are thousands and thousands of subscribers, hundreds of Facebook followers, and well over a hundred iTunes reviews, all of which helped this show become one of the top history podcasts on the iTunes Store today. The Land of Desire has been featured on the front page of the iTunes Store. Broadcast on Canada's national public radio, and featured in numerous articles and podcast newsletters. Thanks to all of these factors, the Land of Desire is swiftly approaching the quarter million download mark. You guys, thank you so much! Because of all your support, I wanted to spend today thanking you for your support by answering questions that you've all sent in. I'll also be making a few very special announcements. So pop open some champagne and let's get this party started. Today's first question comes from Dave, who asks, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about shows on areas beyond Paris, and if so, what about? Oh Dave, you have no idea. When I first sat down with my little podcast-specific notebook, which is covered in Breton stripes, I wrote down rules for my future show. One of the first rules was, don't just talk about Paris. Oopsie-daisy. There are definitely a few episodes which don't focus exclusively on Paris. You could check out the first episode in my Alexandre Dumas series and the episode on Escargot. But there's no denying this show, like so much French history, is Paris-centric. One of the aspects of French life, which is hard to wrap one's head around if one is raised in a place like the United States, is just how centralized the French nation is. While of course France has had its countryside rebellions and regional differences, it is nevertheless still a very imbalanced power structure with everything from laws about language to the educational curriculum emanating out of the capital city. This is a deliberate move. Only by dictating culture, language, business, and opportunity from the center on out can we keep the countryside docile or so French kings have seemed to think over the centuries. It's probably no surprise that, in fact, that very same heavy-handed influence is exactly what caused the rest of France to rebel against the capital time and time again. The disproportionate influence and attention given to Paris causes friction at many points throughout history, right up until this moment. You saw a glimpse of this during the episode A Tale of Two Cities when the French countryside rejected the revolutionary politics of Paris and literally went to war with the capital city as it was taken over by revolutionary communards. Anyone who has ever visited anywhere outside of Paris will tell you that non-Parisians are quick to distinguish themselves from their Parisian countrymen. Ah, the Parisians, we're not all like that. And it's true. The French countryside is its own separate world, which developed its own history in spite of, and often in a direct reaction to, the history of its capital. With that said, I definitely do want to dwell on the world outside of Paris in the next year. So on that note, I will move on to the next related question from Joshua. Joshua asked, Do any French citizens still identify themselves as Norman, Flemish, Breton, or Burgundian? I know many provinces were ferociously independent in the past. Absolutely, Joshua. For all that France might be an extremely top-heavy state now, These centuries of conflict are a hangover from the 9th century when the Treaty of Verdun established some of the first boundaries of what would come to be France. Early French kings faced the same problem over and over again. How on earth do we unite all these wealthy, armed and angry territories together under one tent against their will? The answer is, woo boy. This deserves its own episode. So, in conjunction with Dave's question, I'd love to focus on areas like Burgundy, and not just because it gives me the excuse to eat a lot of incredible food as, you know, part of my research. In fact, in many ways, regional cuisine remains the most durable legacy of these old regional divisions. I touched on this first in my episode about brasseries and immigration from the region of Alsace-Lorraine, but most of the food which the world identifies as classically French hails from somewhere outside Paris. You may never have been to Burgundy, but you've probably eaten coq au vin, or my personal favorite, Bif bourguignon. You may have eaten bouillabaisse or ratatouille, which both come from Provence. Or, my personal favorite, you could visit Toulouse and eat the world's greatest food, cassoulet. Maybe we should have a cooking class along the way, no? In particular, I'd love to talk about the history of the Queen Aman. not only because it's one of the most delicious desserts I've ever eaten, but because I'm absolutely fascinated by the region of Brittany. Bretons remain one of the most distinct cultural groups in France, who continue to speak their own language and retain many elements of the culture they brought with them from Great Britain as they fled the Anglo-Saxon invaders a really, really long time ago. This distinction drew many French artists who were inspired by the region's striking cultural traditions. Perhaps Breton's greatest admirer was the artist Paul Gauguin, who spent over a decade in the region, once writing that I love Brittany. I find a certain wildness and primitiveness there. When my clogs resound on this granite soil, I hear the dull, matte, powerful tone which I seek in my painting. Mysterious art? Delicious food? A unique language derived not from the Romans but from the Celts? Yes please! expect an episode on Brittany for sure. Joshua also asked another great question. Could there be a podcast in the future about the grape disease that wiped out French wines? Oh, could there? Strange as this may sound, this is actually a big point of personal pride for me, because my very own hometown here in California was instrumental in the preservation of the French wine industry. I don't want to give too much away, because this will definitely be a future episode, but I think I'll have to conduct a lot of in-depth research in the tasting rooms of all my hometown's vineyards. Suffice it to say, The phylloxera epidemic of the 1880s threatened to destroy the French wine industry for good, until my hometown stepped in to save the day and save the wine. You're very welcome, France. I will accept thank yous in the form of a bottle of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Charles asks... I must know more about how middle-aged Hemingway ended up at all involved with the armed forces liberating Paris 20 years after the Jazz Age. How was he even there? I'm sure there must be an amusing story there. Oh my god, Charles, you have no idea. So, 20 years after the Jazz Age is over, Ernest Hemingway is now a somewhat amusing, extremely talented alcoholic 40-something rolling around with a cigar in his mouth trying to get paid. While other journalists had been stationed in Europe since the outbreak of World War II, advocating for American intervention and reporting on the atrocities of the Axis forces, Ernest Hemingway was uh, patrolling the coast of Cuba in his 38-foot fishing boat. He put some grenades and a lot of booze on board and just sort of patted around for years. However, when word got out that the Americans were finally planning their European invasion, Ernest Hemingway was absolutely determined to be the very first man on the scene, and not just because it would guarantee him a big payday. When he learned that Collier's magazine wanted to send someone to the front lines of what would turn out to be D-Day, Hemingway poached the assignment from another journalist. Then, when that journalist tried to get a seat on the press plane ferrying over all the journalists to the front lines, Hemingway forced them out. Instead, this poor journalist had to spend 17 days crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a ship transporting weapons loaded with explosives. Gee whiz, I wonder, would the Nazis like to sink that boat? Luckily, the other journalist made it across the ocean intact, but once they made it to the Allied forces, they weren't willing to carry this other journalist to the beaches of Normandy on a military transport. While Ernest Hemingway sailed to the beaches shoulder to shoulder with Allied troops, this other journalist had to smuggle their way onto a hospital ship, hide themselves in a bathroom, and lock the door. The other journalist ended up arriving two days after D-Day. Eventually, both writers published pieces about D-Day in the same issue of Collier's magazine. One from the journalist who had risked their life to cover the invasion and waded through the bloodied, muddied waters of the Atlantic to get up close and personal, and one from Ernest Hemingway, who landed in Normandy and immediately commandeered some Jeeps and champagne bottles to drive towards the Ritz Hotel in Paris. In fact, some scholars don't believe Ernest Hemingway ever set foot on the beaches of Normandy during the action. Nevertheless, Collier's magazine gave Hemingway the front cover and a five-page story, including a photograph of Hemingway surrounded by soldiers. Meanwhile, the other journalist had a one-page piece with no photographs published on page 16. This other journalist's name was Martha Gellhorn. You may know her, as Ernest Hemingway's wife. By the end of World War II, Martha Gellhorn had enough. I'm tired of being a footnote in somebody else's life, she said, and in 1945, if you can believe it, she filed for divorce. Lucille asks... I'm a reader of Emile Zola's fiction, and I would like to see you address the relationship between him and the Impressionist artists. Was his friendship with Cézanne forever spoiled with the publication of Zola's work, The Masterpiece? Great question, Lucille. So far, I've only discussed Emile Zola with regards to the Dreyfus affair. But Emile Zola was the kind of guy who had his finger in every pie and he's a pivotal figure in just about every social scene around during the Belle Époque. I haven't talked about his friendship with Cézanne, and I probably won't do so anytime soon, only because we have spent so very many episodes on that period of time already. One thing I've realized while producing this show is that it's very easy to get stuck in the 1880s, but there is, of course, so much more history to cover. However... In the meantime, if you're interested in learning more about the friendship between Cézanne and Zola, there is a movie which was just released a few months ago which covers this exact subject. It's called Cézanne et Moi. It's directed by Danielle Thompson, and it covers the friendship and falling out between the two great artists over the course of their lifetimes. I hope that viewing Cézanne et Moi will help tide you over until I return to this period of time. I know I didn't even come close to answering all of the questions I received from listeners. Thank you so much for the emails, the Facebook comments, and the tweets that you sent over the past couple of weeks. If you didn't hear your question answered here today, my apologies. If I answered everyone, this episode would be well over an hour long. However, many of you suggested terrific episode ideas, so keep an ear out in the months to come. If you didn't get an answer today, you might be getting your answer in the future. Now, I'd like to move on to making a few very exciting announcements. First, I'd like to announce the creation of the Land of Desire's Patreon page. For those of you who aren't familiar, Patreon is a platform which helps listeners contribute directly to artists and support their work, usually in exchange for special rewards. Quite a few of you have asked me to set this up, and I am humbled and appreciative of this. The truth is, it's quite expensive to produce this show, and in order to be sustainable in the long run... I'll need listeners to help me offset the costs of the show. So Patreon is a way to help support the show and allow me to keep it going long past this one-year mark while still keeping the land of desire ad-free for everyone. Now, here's the fun part. As a thank you to those who support me, I'll be offering those special rewards. These rewards include things like the ability to choose episode topics, scheduling Google Hangouts with me, and getting a sneak peek behind the scenes of the episodes to come. I've also set up two goals. If the total amount of monthly contributions reaches $100 per month, I'll launch an email newsletter with extra content, fun facts, links to interesting stories, and more. If the total amount of monthly contributions reaches $200 per month, I'll begin releasing bonus, full-length episodes exclusively for my Patreon supporters, no matter how much they're contributing. You can visit the Patreon page at www.patreon.com thelandofdesire That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the land of desire. I'll be adding a link to the show's website and the Facebook page as well. Thank you again to all of you for your continued support of this show. Next, I'd like to remind all of you that there's one more day left to enter my giveaway. Anyone who spreads the word about the Land of Desire is eligible for a special French treat. This could mean sharing the Land of Desire's Facebook page to your friends. It could mean tweeting about the show, emailing your friends and family about it, or writing about it on Reddit or Tumblr. If you do spread the word, make sure to email me about it at diana at thelandofdesire.com so I know you're entered for the giveaway. I'll be announcing the winner on the show's Facebook page next week. You have until the end of day tomorrow, July 14th, to spread the word. Finally, I'd like to announce a special project which is near and dear to my heart. When I first started this podcast, I had absolutely 100% no idea what I was doing. I had never launched anything like this in my life. I had no idea where to start. I didn't own a microphone. I had nothing but a very specific vision in my mind of the podcast I wanted to make. Since the show's launch, I've had a lot of people reach out with questions about starting their own podcast. So now it's my turn to pay it forward. This next Tuesday, July 18th, I'll be launching a series on Medium called How to Start a Podcast. This series will contain all the real-life, practical information that I wish I'd had when I first started, and it's meant to help amateur podcasters, or aspiring podcasters, produce their own show with confidence. I'll be publishing the series on Medium at medium.com slash at Diana Steagall, but I'll make sure to share links to this series on the Land of Desire's Facebook page and the show's blog. If you or anyone you know are curious about starting a podcast, I really encourage you to check out the series. This show is one of the best things I've ever done for myself. I've learned new skills. I've had a creative outlet. I finally have an answer when somebody asks me for an interesting fact about myself. And best of all, I've gotten to meet all of you wonderful listeners living all around the world. I hope that by launching this series, some of you listening at home right now will join me in the world of podcasting yourselves. This brings me to the end of our very special first anniversary episode. Once again, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for making this year so special, so exciting, so educational, and so rewarding. My favorite part of producing The Land of Desire is hearing from all of you, whether you're getting ready to visit France and you want some travel advice, whether you've just returned from France and you wanna know more about what you saw, Whether you're French yourself and want to discuss a bit of history, which may not be well known around the world, or just correct my pronunciation, merci et je suis très désolé in advance, by the way, or whether you're someone who simply loves French culture, French history, and French podcasts, and enjoys spending half an hour with me every few weeks. I hope you all have a Bon Fête Nationale this July 14th, And I can't wait to spend the next year with all of you celebrating the weird, wacky, and wonderful history of France. Until next time, au revoir!